HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com chef. I just think that eventually I pivoted completely and I was like, okay, it's not about all of Korean America. It's about Korean American in relationship to my mom. It's my, it's a, my mother's story. And then I think it was through the edits and then through the writing and then the grueling process of all of that where I started to recognize that uh, I'm not divorced from my mother. And I think I didn't have the confidence when I first started to claim that I was part of the story until I, you know, basically took a masterclass in Korean cooking by living with her for a year, you know, writing this book with her and learning about her pantry and her methods. And it totally evolved in a beautiful way that I think makes sense for the title of the book, which is the Korean part is it's my mother's, my mother's food, my mother's homeland. But the American part is an extension of her cooking. It's who I am as her son, but also as someone who has always had to straddle these two nations. But my argument is that Korean cooking in America is American cooking. So this is an American cookbook. That was Eric Kim discussing his new cookbook and memoir, Korean American, Food That Tastes Like Home. Through cheeseburger kimbap and roasted seaweed avocado toast, Eric explores what it means to be Korean American. On today's episode, we'll detail some more culinary crossroads. How does what we eat impact who we become? Sometimes the most intimate details of a person's life, their mental state, their economic status, their relationships, can be revealed by examining what they ate. Meals can help tell the story of regular people and celebrity icons. Culinary staples are a way to understand different eras and places. Today we're talking about food and biography. 
I'm Katie Mosman Wadler, and this is Meet and Three on HRN. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. One meet, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and Three. Connection is often built over a meal, but there's an even deeper intimacy in knowing what someone eats in private. That's part of what attracts followers to the popular Twitter account, Sylvia Plath's Food Diary. Each tweet reveals a new layer of the poet's persona through food. Anna Kenny has more. During the first lockdown, freelance writer Rebecca Brill was looking for company. So, she turned to the journals of the poet Sylvia Plath. As a teen, Rebecca had found solace in the imagery and intensity of Plath's writing. But this time around, she noticed something new. It was only upon revisiting those diaries later, like more recently, that I was particularly and deeply struck by how often and how vividly and kind of with how much emotion that Plath writes about food in her diaries. Plath is one of the most celebrated poets of the 20th century. But privately, she was also an excellent food writer. Rebecca is not a foodie, but she says she's always been interested in the mundane habits of people's daily lives. Food is a major part of that. I'm not interested in, you know, people's dieting techniques. I'm not really that interested in, like, the green juice that people are drinking, but I'm totally interested in um, what people do to feed themselves when they're left to their own devices. And I think with Plath, we get a lot of that. We get a lot of like pretty weird descriptions of pretty weird food, in part because it's the 50s, notoriously kind of gross food. And then in part, just because I think Plath is a weirdo, like many of us. Rebecca started gathering Plath's food descriptions to pass the time. There are lyrical musings on fish cake and liver and various compotes, along with soothing elixirs of honey and vinegar or warm milk with amaretto before bed. She started sharing these via the Twitter account, What Sylvia Ate. It tweets a food description from a diary entry or letter each day. Since it launched in early 2020, it's gained over 45,000 followers. It's clear that many find a sense of connection in these tweets. Followers feel closer to Plath through a shared love of breakfast foods and wine. People often retweet the entries and say things like, she's just like me, or she's so real for this. Although... Plath's more peculiar tastes sometimes get a different reaction. A thing that comes up a lot and that people get really enraged about is the sheer quantity of milk that Sophia Plath drank. Sometimes, particularly when she's younger and um, these come up in her letters to her mother from summer camp, and sometimes she's drinking like seven to eight cups of milk a day, which is kind of psychotic. Though Plath's life has been well documented, her meals are a new type of biography. Her years studying at Smith College were marked by the cookies she nibbled on while studying, or the beer and pizza she shared on dates. As an undergraduate, she played at being refined. She tried luxuries like oysters and escargot and champagne. And she savored her solitary meals. I drink sherry and wine by myself because I like it, and I get the sensuous feeling of indulgence I do when I eat salted nuts or cheese. Luxury bliss, erotic-tinged. 1953. In her Cambridge years, she learned to love cooking. 
With one gas ring in her dorm room, she escaped the pasty white British food that disagreed with her. I cooked a steak he had brought on my one gas jet and managed to throw together a candlelight dinner for two with salad, fruit compote, red wine, cheese, and crackers. 1955. In her marriage to fellow poet Ted Hughes, she complained of his mother's horrible cooking. In her early years as a wife and mother, she started to bake more often. Throughout her life, her writing was accompanied by hot cups of tea and crisp apples. So many of her memories are accompanied by specific foods. In her journals, her diet is intertwined with her literary genius. These kind of seemingly mundane excerpts give us a window into Platt's daily living and into her mindset. And on a very literal level, the food fuels the work, right? It fuels the writing. And for Rebecca, Platt's love of food was a good reminder during a difficult time. I think she gives as much drama to like a breakfast as she does to sex and death and, and sadness and depression and um, child's bearing. And it really is as important as that. It's like part of the fabric of daily life. And um, I think particularly like during the pandemic, there was drudgery and like having to feed myself that daily chore of having to feed myself. And I think for other people, too, I think Part of why I needed to look at class food writing was the reminder of like the of the of the drama and the and the and the beauty and the emotional stakes of of a meal. Plath's work is marked by her struggles with depression, and her legacy is often clouded by her suicide. But what Sylvia ate reveals a surprising joy. I'm I'm really happy that it kind of delights people, and I think. If it delights people, it's because Plath's descriptions of food and her taking real like joy in food is really counter to um, the way that I think the broader culture regards Sylvia Plath. We don't really think of her as like someone with a zest for life or a really joyful person or a person who's really taking pleasure in earthly delights. We often conceive of Sylvia Plath as like dead even when she was alive and kind of like anemic and wan and kind of a caricature of a sad girl. So I think if I think it's if it's captured the attention of a large audience, it's probably because it really shows a different dimension of Sylvia Plath that maybe people weren't aware of as much before. Food adds a fullness to Plath. Like many of us, she loved eating really good food. And through her eyes, even the most boring meals are poetry. Even simple meals are made delicious through language. I long to permeate the matter of this world, to become anchored to life by laundry and lilacs, daily bread and fresh eggs. February 19th, 1956. Plast Food Diary shows that if you start romanticizing your food, your whole life starts to feel a little more romantic. And I think that's why I personally resonate with the tweets. What Sylvia ate is my daily reminder that to find a love of food is to find a love of life. So when I sit down for breakfast, I'll try to imagine that I'm sharing it with Plath. She points out the way that our delicate croissants float above the plate. She reminds me to notice the flavor of my scalding hot coffee. And ultimately, to marvel at my own mundane mornings. While Sylvia Plath's penchant for dairy may have been confined to her private diary, plenty of other authors allow their personal tastes to slip into their published work. 
Vaidehi Kujati speaks with a writer who brings food descriptions of the past into the present day. In the fall of 2017, writer Valerie Stivers embarked on a culinary journey unlike any other. She began cooking with famous writers from around the world. Gogol is a Russian writer of uh, sort of a peasant, uh, peasant stories and these very weird Baroque stories about life in Ukrainian villages. And um, they're just full of food. Every single story practically has this incredible Russian peasant food in it. And um, I was really inspired by that and thought it was really cool and kept thinking, I want to make this food. And how could I do this? That would be crazy. It's, it's so much work. From whipping up Irish Murdoch's humble lentil soup to medieval barley bread and beef stew, Cyrus uses descriptions of food and literature to create incredibly complex meals. And while this project seems simple enough, there is a lot that goes into it. From encountering the lack of good translations to historical dishes that don't exist anymore, Stivus is constantly troubleshooting to cook from literature. I'm always looking to cook from different cultures. It's difficult because you you don't find a lot of works in translation, especially uh, works with non-living authors in translation from, uh, you know, all around the world. So I'm always trying to get out of English literature, American literature, French, Italian, like those are the sort of easy to, easy to find ones. But, um, you know, even with some of those food traditions, you're usually encountering food that you wouldn't necessarily know how to cook. So, I mean, I buy cookbooks to the extent that I can. I mean, I do research on the internet. Sometimes I get in touch with a person who knows more than I would about the cuisine. While Cyrus is committed to making dishes that are historically accurate while honoring the writer's description, the process is also fairly creative. You know, I recently did a It was a chicken casserole from Dorothy Sayers, who's an English mystery writer from the 1930s. And I know that whatever this casserole chicken was from the 1930s would not have been something I would want to eat for dinner. So I made it more flavorful. I did something, you know, in the French style, which would have been at that time how people would have had a fancy French inflected dish on their table and the kind of people in the story would have been French inflected, but I made it Provencal and a lot more flavorful than, than the Victorian sort of era table would have had it. For Stivers, the project is more than simply doing extensive research and creative problem solving. It is also a way for her to connect with the characters in the books she's reading. Food is, a, is something that's connected to so many different aspects of the world. Like your food can be political, it can be about labor, it can be about the environment, it can be about family, it can be about appetite, it can be about sexuality, it can be about nurture, you know, it can be moral in many different ways. And so when you look at what a character in a book has on their table, it's telling you an enormous amount about the point of the book and the values of the book. And in a way, she's also encountering the authors of the books themselves. I think that on some level, you're kind of getting the spirit that this is an encounter with the writer that is not something that you can get just from reading the book. Like you're really, you're having dinner with this writer. You're like eating with them in a way. And that's, you know, anytime you eat with someone, you learn about them and you encounter them in a new way and you uh, sort of bring your humanity to their humanity by, by sharing food together. So... Um, that's what that's what we're doing. The next time I pick up a novel by a favorite author, I will be looking for their descriptions of meals and food. 
And maybe I will even try to recreate some of the dishes the characters are eating. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. Did you know that over 70% of diners research a restaurant online before ordering from or going in person? Your digital front door is more important than ever. Let Bento Box design and build you a beautifully branded website. Bento Box websites provide sleek design and seamless content management, creating impactful first impressions and converting visitors into customers. And with built-in commerce and marketing tools like online ordering, gift cards, automated email, and more, you can also grow your revenue and keep your diners coming back. Join over 8,000 restaurants that leverage Bento Box to power their digital presence and deliver great hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. I'm Chaba Peribán, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome back to Meet and 3. It's hard to imagine many people with a biography as impressive as Julia Child. So it's no surprise that she's a constant source of inspiration for many film and television writers. And now the OG queen of food media is suddenly everywhere, nearly 60 years after making her television debut. I read, you know, as much as I could. I read a bunch of the Julia biographies. I watched countless hours of Julia on television, on The French Chef, on... David Letterman on Good Morning America. I read her interviews. I read her letters. I went to Schlesinger Library and read her letters. And then we tried to honor the facts of the biography. But then within those facts, we tried to figure out what life was like behind closed doors. Daniel also spoke about the differences between Julia the documentary and Julia the TV series. A documentary is all sort of public footage. It's all footage that Julia was conscious that she was being recorded. And in in the movie, which I love, it covers a 15-year period of time, and it's only half the movie. So you're really get hitting all the major biographical moments of Julia's. We cover less than a year, and we have eight hours to do it. 
So it just gave us this opportunity to show the private side of Julia and the kind of interior Julia. And she's still delightful and daffy and full of life and is inspiring. But we also get to see a little bit of her fragility, a little bit of her insecurity, which I think only makes her seem that much stronger and more uh, unsinkable. And then on the Julia Child Challenge, audiences get another look at the famed food icon. The show presents old clips of Julia on a massive screen inside a competition-style kitchen, allowing Julia to serve as both host and mentor to the contestants. On another episode of Inside Julia's Kitchen, host Todd Shulkin caught up with a producer for the show, Blake Davis. We wanted to kind of reintroduce her to new generations that maybe didn't get to grow up watching her show. Um, And so we wanted each episode to be structured around kind of an aspect of her life. The first episode is centered around that moment that kind of set Julia on her course to becoming Julia. Typically, the way the episodes are structured is there'll be a first challenge where Julia teaches you a kitchen technique. You learn something from Julia that first challenge. And then the second challenge is you take inspiration from Julia, that aspect of her life that we're looking at that week. If there's an episode about her relationship with her husband, Paul, you know, we might ask them to make a dish that, you know, is in honor of a relationship, you know, that's important in their life, you know, so you're learning about Julia, but you're also, you know, connecting that part of Julia's life to your own, you know, which I thought was important, like finding that connection between you and Julia's experience, you know, each episode in one way or another. How do you depict a woman whose own legacy is larger than life? The simple answer is, you can't. Julia Child's biography cannot be stuffed into a single 90-minute documentary. The beauty of all this new Julia content is that it allows audiences to view a remarkable life through a kaleidoscopic lens. It can be easy to lose sight of the fact that a legend is also just a person. Biography, by definition, is a written account of a person's life, including intimate details of their experiences and an analysis of their personality. The Big City Food Biography series attempts to create the same narrative for, you guessed it, big cities around the world. Alex Tran speaks with two authors from the series to learn more about its creation. I'm Judith Dern. I live in Seattle. And I am the author of The Food and Drink of Seattle, From Wild Salmon to Craft Beer. And I'm Liz Williams, and I'm the founder of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. And uh, my new book is Nana's Creole Italian Table. But I also wrote New Orleans, A Food Biography. While Judith came on board after Big City Food Biographies had expanded internationally in 2018, Liz was among the first to have a book published back in 2013. Thus, she was tasked with not only structuring the series, but also differentiating these biographies from the usual travel guides. So I didn't get to read anybody else's first to see how they had approached the story of their city or anything that would have made it seem to fit into the outline. It really was evident to me 
that no one had ever written a book about why there's a cuisine in New Orleans. People talked a lot about the history of this dish and the history of that dish, um, but there was no overarching story about the food of the city. And it seemed to me that it was really important that we figure out why a cuisine developed and talked about it so that we would understand going forward um, how the city continues to develop and continues to have a lively food culture. And it wasn't ossified at some point. You can't pick a point in time and say, okay, here is the end. This is where the food of New Orleans developed and everything after that doesn't count because I think that what we have is a constantly developing food system. And I don't think we're alone in that. There was a lot to discover, I think, in the writing of of this uh, book. And reading several books in the series, you see how um, unrecognized so much of the food culture of America has been. And thus, Liz and Judith began their adventure investigating this culture through a detailed look at the food scene in the cities. While some have a more defined cuisine to their names, Others are defined by all that comes to create their food ecology. If you look at a place like New York, New York has fabulous food culture, but there's really not what I would call a New York cuisine. There is a neighborhood or a a restaurant that represents some group of people side by side by side everywhere. And you get really the food that people recognize from their home so that the immigrants who come and settle in New York can find the food of their homeland in the city. Whereas in New Orleans, that doesn't really happen. What happens is the food gets what I call creolized so that it kind of morphs and it influences the food of New Orleans so that the food of New Orleans begins to absorb all of the immigrant food, and it changes our food over the years. Yes, I think the immigrant influence has been huge in many cities. And certainly for Seattle, I'd say it's both immigrants and the geography, because Seattle's just, it's, it grew up around neighborhoods. Um, so we have an Asian neighborhood, we had a Black neighborhood, we have Scandinavians, um, and they were pretty independent because they were cut off geographically by water for the most part and hills. But as the city grew and expanded, they did start blending more. But you can still find pockets. And the Asian culture was so essential to building Seattle that I think people always don't always recognize that either. Big city food biographies aren't just looking at food stories and identities of today but throughout a much longer history that spans back to colonial times. The French started exploring um, uh, uh, the area in Louisiana in the 17th century, the late 17th century, and into the early 18th century before they actually founded the city in 1718. And so um, one of the good things about being French was that they didn't believe that they had a way to eat. You know, there were English people 
who actually starve to death in their settlements because they refuse to, as they say, eat like savages. And the follow-up settlers would come and they'd go to the settlement and find the journals of these people who basically refused to eat the food that was native to the area around them. But in New Orleans and in Louisiana, everybody felt that the food was French because they were in France. And so if they had to eat alligator, it was a French alligator and that was okay. Well, I can start by saying when the first settlers arrived, for some reason they arrived in November of 1851, and it was the son of the of the man had come ahead and built a cabin and he, the family had come up from, from San Francisco and it was the Denny party and they made it through the winter because the native Americans befriended them and fed them basically (laughs) Um, taught them how to find berries and greens in the forest, but also help them catch fish and hunt. Um, so there were there were local food, and I think that tradition continued. I know it's continued. It was also fascinating to me to learn that the native people here, they didn't migrate like other tribes around North America. There was enough food in this area that they could stay and live where they were finding food, which was quite different than other parts. Maybe for your next road trip, skip the car rental and the trip advisor search. Hop on the culinary time machine with big city food biographies inside. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Sophie Burko, Isaac Furman, Vaidehi Kudyadi, Anna Canny, and Alex Tran. Meet and Three is produced by Matt Patterson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say, hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>